Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. This week is a little bit bittersweet. It's episode 286 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and I say that because this is the beginning of the final season of Arrow. It's going to premiere Tuesday, October the 15th at 9 p.m. Eastern, right after The Flash. The final season is is starting now, and it's just it's been seven amazing seasons. I can only imagine how great season eight is. So this week, I've got the cast and the producers on the show from Arrow, got to talk to them at San Diego Comic-Con, and, you know, just kind of reflect on seven seasons, find out what's going to be coming up for this season, I mean, what they could say. Anyway, you, you know how it goes sometimes, so we'll talk to Stephen, Stephen Amell, Katie Cassidy, David Ramsey, and the group about that. Also, speaking of Arrowverse, going to be talking about Supergirl, Batwoman, with spoilers this time, and Black Lightning this week. Also, in case you didn't know, we're doing Arrowverse watch parties now. That's right. You can join me every Tuesday night and Sunday night starting at 8 o'clock Eastern on the TV Co. app. I'm hosting Arrowverse watch parties so we can watch The Flash together, watch Arrow, Batwoman, Supergirl. So get the TV Co. app. Go to your Apple App Store, whatever they're calling it now, or the Google Play Store. TVCO. Download that app and follow me at Down and Nerdy. And that's where you can... Watch the Arrowverse with me all season long on TV, Co. But let's get back to business, shall we? It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Aubrey Sitterson, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether you're turning the page or you're swiping left, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And since the Joker movie is out, how about we talk about some Joker comics? That's the Joker Year of the Villain number one from DC John Carpenter, yeah, this is the one. John Carpenter teaming up with Anthony Birch writing this one. Philip Tan on the pencils. Every inker you could possibly imagine working on this book. Mark Deering, Philip Tan, Danny Meeky, and Jonathan Glapion all on the inks. J. David Ramos on the colors and Gabriel Downey, excuse me, Gabrielle Downey on the letters. Now, this is a story really to me, as I was reading this, of insanity versus evil. Now, not going to spoil anything here, where Joker takes on a sidekick and starts doing something that you would never really expect the Joker to do. But not tr- he's not truly doing it. He puts his own Joker twist on it. Let's put it this way. And it's creepy as hell when it's happening, too. If, you're, if you've been following these characters for years, yeah, it's pretty creepy. Now, the sidekick, sidekick is actually the narrator of the story and really weaves the narrative quite well. The story just gets more and more disturbing, too. As it goes on, there's also a bit of a wolf in sheep's clothing thing going on here. But in this case, the clothing is exactly that. It's just it's just clothing. Now, I, I love that Carpenter actually draws a conclusion about the Joker towards the end of this book through the eyes of the of the narrator. And that's really it's very direct. And the story actually gives evidence to support this theory. And I, it was very, very intriguing when I got to that point in the book, and it really got me thinking, and it's it was almost like hitting the nail on the head, kind of, to me. Now, this is the most brilliant moment in the whole story. 
It was a good story anyway, but this is the this is the shining moment of it. Now the end is very disturbing, but it's also very very unconventional in a book that is talk that is titled The Joker. I mean, this story is just as much about this sidekick as it is about the Joker, which was really daring on the on the creative team's part, I think. But it really really pays off because you get enough jo- you certainly get enough Joker for it to be a Joker book. But then there's this other character that you bring in. And you get invested, or at least I did, certainly about halfway through the story. I was kind of hooked in once I, you know, got my bearings and found out what was going on, which was a little bit difficult in the very, very early going. But that it, that gets cleared up really quickly. Now, the art really powers through in this book and gets stronger and stronger as it goes along. And also dials up the crazy a little bit as it goes along, So, which actually kind of mirrors the story. Everything sort of comes into focus towards the end with both the art and the writing, and that is just such great linear storytelling. If you don't already have the Joker Year of the Villain number one in your collection, whether it be digitally or hard copy, you're going to need to get this one because it was a fascinating read for me. I love this. So I would say put it in your pull box, but, I mean, it's the one issue, so just go grab it. Speaking of something that is starting anew, we've got Cobra Kai heading to comics with IDW and Cobra Kai the Karate Kid Number one with Denton J. Tipton on the writing, Kagan McLeod on the art, Louis Luis Antonio Delgado on the colors, and Neil Utake on the letters. Now, the book is subtitled Johnny's Story. We do get to see some flashbacks. They're pretty quick with some stuff from Johnny's childhood and some others from his early days at Cobra Kai and with Allie and stuff like that. Now, we also get some present-day scenes where he's kind of preparing his students, the students that you know from the Cobra Kai TV show, for the upcoming tournament. And this is the, I say present, it's 2018. So you're kind of talking like season one Cobra Kai here. Now, there are also some pages towards the end of the book that Karate Kid fans are going to be very familiar with, or even just Cobra Kai fans are going to be familiar with. Here's the problem, though. We don't really break a whole lot of new ground here in this story. I mean, especially if you're a huge fan of the Karate Kid genre anyway. There's very little new content, and what we do get that's new feels very, very rushed. The problem is that the show's done such a great job of crafting this story that the comic really falls short of that. It doesn't really fall in line with how well the story is done in the show. Maybe that's a fair criticism, maybe it's not. But I just feel like I was expecting a little bit more here. And as far as the art goes, art's not bad, but it's certainly not enough to enhance the experience of the story. You know, there's certain times where you're like, ah, oh, the story's a little clunky and feels familiar, but the art was fantastic. And I just didn't feel that way about this particular book. Now, I'm a fan of the franchise, a big fan, admittedly. And I'm really hoping to get more new material in this second issue because this book has to be more than familiar flashbacks and cheap dated pop culture references that are put in there for humor. And that's what this first book was. Unfortunately, I'm not ready to say I'm going to drop this one yet. I will read the next issue, but you've got to give me something more as far as new material goes because when when Cobra Kai, the TV series, brought in stuff that we are, we've already seen and we already knew, they backed that up with a lot of new story, and we did not get nearly enough of that in this first issue of Cobra Kai, the Karate Kid number one from IDW. So hopefully that changes coming up in the next issue. That's going to do for what we're reading up next. Time to dive into the Arrowverse. We'll start first 
with Batwoman with spoilers this time next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is John Sipos from Krypton, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The wait is finally over. We finally get to see the premiere of Batwoman on the CW this past Sunday. This time I'm going to do a spoiler-filled review. You've already heard my spoiler-free review during our Comic-Con episodes. If you didn't hear that, go back and hear my thoughts on that. I believe it's the first Comic-Con episode up there on the page, San Diego Comic-Con episode, the first one, part one. So that's where the spoiler-free review is up. But I wanted to give a little bit of an update on this since there were characters that I couldn't really talk about in that one. So I'm not going to go into the entire review of what I thought of the episode. And I will say that I did enjoy it. I know that there are plenty that did not for a lot of reasons. And you just have to, you you got to understand what you're getting yourself into here. Especially with the Arrowverse shows. There are still so many fans that I see criticizing, you know, the acting or the overacting and things like that in these shows. It's the CW and it's the Arrowverse. This is stuff that's been going on for a long time in a lot of shows. And I know a lot of shows in the Arrowverse are presented differently. But at the same time, it's like, this is not new. I don't understand why this criticism keeps coming up. You know what you're getting into with Greg Berlanti and Mark Guggenheim and the group. You know how they're going to present the shows. Why are you suddenly so surprised that this show is is doing the exact same thing? And I will say, though, one of my criticisms that I had of the show early on was that they used the same flashback a lot. And that was the flashback of Kate Kane and Sophie at the Academy and showing their relationship. And we, we get that scene a lot. But at the same time, it didn't, watching it again, it didn't feel like as much as I originally thought. And that's because it does get broken up a little bit where, you know, they get busted by their superior officer. You know, Kate gives him the thing, basically gives him the finger and says, I won't sign your little paper. And, and Sophie does. And that's kind of where they go their separate ways. So it didn't feel as 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 much to me in the watching it the second time as it did I, the first time. So I will kind of correct myself on that, but at the same time it it did seem like they went to that. It, it was a little bit much. What I love though is the dynamic between Kate Kane and Luke Fox, especially when he catches her and he thinks, you know, he's Mr. Security, big man on campus and she owns him. Basically, she completely owns him. Like when she handcuffs him to the server there and then she already knows what the password is because, I mean, it's her cousin. Come on. And then when she's trying to get down in the back cave and he tries to stop her and he's completely unsuccessful, that was really fun too. So I just love Cameron Johnson's Luke Fox character so much. I really hope we get Batwing at some point. I know I'm looking far into the future. I'm sorry. I can't help myself. I really, I really hope that we see Batwing at some point. I know it's not going to be this season. Re- absolutely, I know that. So the other thing that, I mean, it was kind of uncomfortable at times, and that's the relationship between Kate and her dad, Jacob Kane. And, you know, there's a lot of hard truths there about, you know, whether or not he blames her for what happened with the mother and the sister. And then, you know, her she's he never really accepts her, never really wants to make her one of the crows or anything like that. And you, you kind of... You see flashes of him acting like he cares about his daughter, and then there's other times where it's not so much. So it's very interesting, especially once you get Alice involved, and you find that Alice's beef is actually with with Jacob Kane and not with the Gotham Police or with 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 Batman or anything like that. It's with 
the Crows. Basically, it's with Jacob Keynes. So that's and that's why she took Sophie in the first place. It wasn't to get anybody's attention except for Jacob Kane. And we find out why that is and that the big spoiler that I couldn't talk about before is that we find out that Alice, in, a sen- in essence, is Beth. She is Beth Kane. She is the sister that everyone thought died in that car when it fell. And that- that's why she's got an axe to grind. And that makes perfect sense. Now, if you read the comics, you knew that already. So that wasn't a huge shocker. But here was the shocker to me. The shocker was revealing that in the first episode. Because that's something you'd think you would at least stretch out maybe to mid-season. But it's just interesting to me, storytelling-wise, why you decide to drop that bombshell now. Maybe this is a little bit of a different tactic. Maybe you feel like this adds to the narrative a little bit more. Because, you know, we know, but they don't necessarily know. It feels like Kate's kind of figured it out already, which is interesting that she's figured it out so quickly, if that is the case. It doesn't seem like we know for sure after this first episode that she's figured it out. But all the stuff that Kate's been through already, I mean, when finding out that Sophie is is married and she has a husband now, and, and that's difficult enough, her father not accepting her, now she's, you know, put on the cowl for the first time, and that's a huge responsibility, we know that, and now she, has, she already has a, a villain that she has to deal with, and Alice that she may or may not know is her sister. That's a lot of heavy stuff. It'd be put on you when you just rolled up back into town. And then she's basically got the Kardashians for a step family. So I think that there's a lot of interesting storylines here with Batwoman, especially after this first episode. So, I, I mean, I guess I kind of get some of the criticisms of the show. And is the, is the story a little bit all over the place in the first episode? Sure, it's a, a little all, all, all over the place. But the action's good. The story does make sense. I mean, whether you like it or not, it makes sense. It might not be to your liking necessarily. But it does make sense. And there were a few very funny Easter eggs, like the whole Zorro thing, that movie in the park. Yeah, that's really cute. Really clever Easter egg there by the crew. And, and there, was, there were a couple of others as well, and I don't want to dwell on that. But there's a lot to like here if you really want to see it. And that's, that's I guess, what I'm trying to, to point out, is that don't let what you were hoping this to be cloud your judgment for what it can be, especially after one episode. You've got to let this thing play out a little bit. And yes, the suit will evolve. And there's all kinds of things that will evolve about the show. And plus, we know we're getting Tommy Elliott. We know we're getting Magpie. We're getting, we're going to get to see some different villains and see how things sort of play out. So again, just slow your roll a little bit. Give Batwoman a chance to get a few episodes in. And then we can offer a fair criticism of what the show might be for this season. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Batwoman Season 1 premiere series premiere. Up next, we're talking Season 5 of Supergirl. That premiere next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Taylor Hickson from Deadly Class, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Will she or won't she? That was one of the biggest questions coming into the first episode of Season 5 of Supergirl Event Horizon. Spoilers from here on out, boys and girls, because let me tell you right now, the big question for me was, is Will Kara tell Lena the truth about being Supergirl. And we see that danced around a little bit. I'm going to go all over the place with this review, by the way, so just be ready for that. So we get to see a couple of moments where she had a chance to tell her, and I'm just going to get right to it. 
So Kara's supposed to be getting that Pulitzer, and then she just, Lena's going to, you know, bring her up there, and we already see that Lena's plotting stuff, and she wants Kara to hurt like she hurt. She doesn't want to kill her. No, 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 because she, you know, she's given that option by her AI, saying, you know, I can help you kill Supergirl. And she's like, no, 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 I want her to suffer. So this was going to be part of the suffering. So then she's got this grand plan. She's going to upload something to CatCo, and, and something bad's going to happen for Kara. And then Kara just blurts it out. And she, man, not only does she blurt it out, she pours her heart and soul out to Lena. And you think that, I mean, and then there's tears everywhere. And you think that, you know, everything, maybe everything's okay because Lena doesn't go through with her plan. That was the other interesting thing. Because you've got Andrea Rojas on one end, and we'll talk about her in just a second. And you've got the AI, and everybody's like, hey, wait a second. You were supposed to do this thing, and you didn't do this thing, and why didn't you do this thing? And she just decided that that wasn't the way to go. But that's the thing about a Luthor. A Luthor is always seven steps ahead of everybody else. We should know that by now. And i got to tell you, the way that Lena was evolving in this episode, she might end up being more evil than Lex ever was because there's intent there and there's some really just big emotions there that you know Lex was it was more driven out of ego this is driven out of you know I had feelings I thought I was the better Luthor those feelings betrayed me and now she's pissed and that is almost worse than how things started with Lex so I mean, Lena could be super villain personified because we we hear her say a couple times during the episode, right? I'm not a villain. Yeah, it's usually what villains say, isn't it? So, I mean, she's definitely going through the whole villain thing. But before we move on to, to a, the, one of the bigger stories of the season, I want to talk about Midnight and Jennifer Chong Garcia in this episode because, man, I don't know if she's going to be villain of the week or if she's going to come back at some point because we do see kind of see her... You know, the whole Phantom Zone projector thing. But I got to tell you, Midnight was amazing in this episode. She was taking down the whole team on her own before she eventually, you know, got overtaken by the team towards the end of the episode there. But you saw her skill set and her power set where she was handling John Jones. She was handling Supergirl and and DEO and Alex Danvers. She was handling everybody, even Brainiac. She handled everyone. She nobody could touch her basically, and then of course you know she gets overcome. But man, I got to tell you, I hope this is not just a one-off for Jennifer John Garcia because she was amazing in this episode, and I definitely want to see Midnight come back. But another thing I want to talk about is Andrea Rojas, who's played by Julie Gonzalo. And first of all, she did a fantastic job of seeming likable, and then you hate her, don't you? Almost immediately. You hate her because she wants to turn in. She wants to basically turn Catco, who she, which she now owns, by the way. This is a whole, part of Lena's whole plan. She wants to turn Catco into clickbait media, and that was one thing. You know, Supergirl always takes a stance on something, and this so far it's been clickbait media. You know, you're where where the story is driven by not necessarily the truth, but by what's going to get you clicks. And don't even get me started on that because I could really, really go off on that. And I'm really careful to try not to do that here with the Dan and Nerdy podcast on our website or here on the show. So, But I'm not going to go off into that tangent because that'll be the whole show. 
So basically what you're seeing is, is this is, you know, putting a huge divide into someone like Kara who wants to, you know, report, you know, legitimate news. And even James Olsen says at some point, I'm going to walk if this happens. And she drops the bombshell that she's got to non-compete with them for three years. So they basically never work in journalism again. So if you're wondering how Makad Brooks was going to leave the show, it's all starting to make sense now because James goes in there and he basically says, I quit. I'm done. And he says he's going to go on a new adventure. Now, I don't know if being Guardian's going to pay the bills and if that's what he's going to do. So it's, But it makes sense how he's eventually going to leave the show, is what I'm saying. So I think that that made a lot of sense. But i got to tell you, as far as the character I'm going to love to hate this season, I'm pretty sure it's going to be Andrea Rojas. No doubt about it. And that is props to Julia Gonzalo for sure on that. I can't wait to see how that plays out. But the big story was, you know, we saw... This character at the very end of last season, Malefic Jones, who is Jean Jones' brother. And basically, yeah, that is who unleashed Midnight on the world. And now it's going to be the battle between the Jeans brothers. And, and, and remember, Jean Jones is, you know, he was very much affected by everything that happened with Manchester Black. And he went through a lot last season. So we're going to have to see how that plays out and obviously you see the preview for the next episode where he kind of you know knows he says his brother's a traitor and and all of these other things and we'll get into that coming up more into the next episode but i got to tell you i'm really excited to see this face off because it it's going to get personal for Jean now and how that i mean it already got personal for him last season with Manchester and you know th- everything that happened with his dad. It's been an emotional roller coaster. Now you have to deal with family again, but it's much more adversarial for Jean this time. And that's one thing I'm very excited about. Quickly before I move on, though, I love the dynamic between Neonal and Brainy. Love that. I, I just love that couple already. I, I I just it's so awkward and and weird and clunky. And they bring that up at the end of the episode. And then it looks like you know they finally have their come together moment. So I, I hope we don't lose that kind of quirkiness though about their relationship, because I think that's bringing a lot of humor into a, into a show that is going to have a lot of serious moments pre crisis and during crisis during the season. It's going to be a serious season of Supergirl for season five. So I, I really hope that they keep that in there is the light moments. We don't even know what's happening with Miss Tess mockery yet. There's still a lot of, layers left to be explored in this show so off to a very very good start though in season five that'll do it for my spoiler filled review of the season five premiere of supergirl but we still got black lightning to talk about the season three premiere with spoilers up next my name is james witham and this is the down and nerdy podcast hi this is keiko again from fox's prodigal son and you're listening to the down and nerdy podcast It's season three and Black Lightning is back. So here's my spoiler-filled review of the Black Lightning season three premiere. And I got to tell you, to be honest, this really feels like a completely different show, right? Before it was mainly about the community of Freeland and Black Lightning returning and, you know, going up against Tobias Whale and and the gang activity that was going on and and what was going on with with the police force in Freeland. And now... Basically, after what you saw on last season with Agent O'Dell and the ASA coming in and things that happened with the pod kids and basically rounding up potential metahumans or somebody that that could be a metahuman and locking them up and detaining them. So it's very 
politically relevant to what's going on in today's society, but in a very different way than we've seen in the show in the past. The whole tone and vibe of the show just felt so different. And I think part of that for me was seeing Jefferson in that ASA facility being detained and answering questions and almost being like almost like mentally tortured in a certain way. We see him almost break a couple of times and you find out that he did that to kind of save his daughters and keep the ASA away from them. Meanwhile, the community feels like Black Lightning has either died or abandoned them because he's nowhere to be found. And people from the ASA are basically just looking for these kids and rounding them up, even if they suspect them of being metahumans. So Blackbird, that's right, Anissa is the one that has to kind of hold down the fort. And and the, the community realizes that. But we see Anissa tour one of these facilities, not as Blackbird, but as, as Anissa Pierce, to see how everyone's being treated. And, you know, obviously she decides she's going to do something about it. She just doesn't make those feelings known to everyone in the room. So she teams up with Gamby to find kind of a weakness in the stronghold of the ASA to try and smuggle some of these some of these potential metahumans out. Now, there's a lot that goes right with that plan, and there's some that goes wrong with that plan because, you know, you see that Anessa is not, and they've tried to tell her this a thousand times, haven't they? She's not invincible. She's not, you know, she's not invulnerable. So we do see her, you know, take a, take a hit in this episode, and we don't really we don't really know her condition going at the end of this episode, as far as I can remember, right? We don't really know what's going on with her after she goes through that energy field. But then you go back to Jefferson, and they, there's an incident that happens at that detainment facility with another meta that comes in that eventually gets stopped, but it forces. Agent Odell, or Agent Odell makes the decision to put Freeland completely on lockdown. So basically now he's taking control of Jefferson and his wife at the ASA facility. And, and you know, he's starting to break the deal. And Jefferson is, you know, trying to push back. But he can, he can only push back, but so far, right? Because he's trying to protect his daughter. As a matter of fact, Jennifer... And you and she's still having trouble with her powers even now. And you get to see, and you see her. She's starting to get that cabin fever thing again. So she goes out and you know Anessa's now kind of Anessa's kind of turning into dad a little bit, trying to protect her baby sister, right? So she gets really mad at her. Tells her you know to just if you want to go out, tell me, let me help you, sort of thing. But you know Jennifer's gonna have a little bit of a mind of her own and you know kind of rebel a little bit even. To her sister, she just doesn't understand why she can't just go and do certain things. She is going back to school, though. We do see her in school, so that's that's pretty cool that she can she can still do that. But we see that she again is having trouble containing her powers, and she basically said, "Hey, if I don't use them, that everything builds up, and you know, bad stuff can happen." So there's a lot of stuff going on, and you see Agent Odell, and you're still trying to figure out. Is this dude really trying to make things better or not? And I lean, I'm leaning so far to the not side that I'm about to fall over because I have had a bad feeling about Agent Odell from the very, very beginning. And then you see these ASA goons, this goon squad that he has that's really, really forceful and even trying to infiltrate their way into pushing the police narrative with, with, with uh, Henderson 
when they tell them, they're basically telling them, you're going to have a press conference and you're going to do this. So more and more you see the ASA trying to take control in this martial law in Freeland. And all this talk is of how dangerous the Markovians are, right? Maybe the reason is this whole Markovian thing is just BS. We haven't actually seen a legitimate Markovian threat as far as we know so far, right? The only other nugget we really get is about Tobias Will, and that is that he's not getting his longevity serum anymore. So Tobias is now slowly dying. And Agent Odell needs to know what he had in that briefcase and where it is. And, of course, Tobias is not going to give it up, right? You know, that just wouldn't be Tobias if he would. I got to tell you, again, just feels like a very, very different vibe. Everything's a little bit more broad, I would say. There's a little bit more of a broad scope of things that are going on. And I got to tell you, I'm digging what's going on so far this season of Black Lightning. I'm very curious to see how this storyline will continue throughout the season. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Black Lightning, the season three premiere. Up next, there wasn't a lot of nerd news this week, but we'll tackle some on the Down and Nerdy podcast. This is Harriet Dyer from NBC's In Between, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. Call it the post-New York Comic Con hangover. It's time for nerd news. I mean, what little of it there was. Anyway, what I really like to do is go back and revisit some of the trailers from New York Comic Con first. And that is starting with Star Trek Picard, which we know is going to be coming out at CBS All Access on January the 23rd. And this one seemed to be the one that generated the most buzz out of anything coming out of New York Comic Con. This is one of those shows that you've seen two trailers now. And this is one of those shows that makes you go, I have to have CBS all access and we already knew about the mystery of this girl and you know she says she needs help I mean, Picard agrees to help her the Federation kind of shuns him tells him to go home and not only does he not go home he rounds up his own team decides to do his own off the books rescue mission and the one thing that sticks out to me after all these years after he said you know you he tried to run from his past but he wants to make a better future and it just seems like he wants to make amends for something he felt like he was responsible for. And maybe you, th- you think he was, and maybe you think he wasn't. That's really not the story here. The story is what's going on with this girl and exactly what this rescue mission is. But to me, how his reputation precedes him with so many, and how well-respected Picard is, because basically when he goes to everybody he goes to, he rounds up a team of new faces and old faces and basically, everybody's rallying around Picard, and they're willing to trust him and go into battle with him, no matter what the cost might be. And that, I mean, that tells you something right there, that this is one of the most respected dudes probably ever in Starfleet history. And even after being gone for as long as he was, that just, that respect has never gone away. So matter, So no matter what he thinks of himself or why he had to run away, that respect is still there. So they're willing to follow him no matter what that might mean for them, whether it might mean you know, the detriment of their careers, whether it might be an actually death itself. They're willing to follow him into battle because they believe in him, and if he feels strong enough about something, they're going to follow him. Now the question is, is this all going to come back to bite him once we find out what's going on with this girl? Because that is the mystery that we have yet to uncover, but I mean, we get to see Jerry Ryan. That was cool. We get to see Riker and Picard reunited. That was pretty cool. We even see Data at one point in the trailer. So you get just enough fan service to make you excited if you're a Next Generation fan. But almost all of this 
feels like news story and a continuing story that this is one of those times where a continuing story actually makes sense and feels fresh. So I cannot wait for Star Trek Picard in January. Another trailer that really, really caught my eye was the trailer for season four of The Expanse, which has now moved to Amazon Prime Video. Now, again, we find out that that's going to be coming out on December the 13th. And first of all, it's just nice to see the crew of the Rossi on land for once, you know. It just feels like they've been up there for so long, and now they're finally on the land. But this time, I mean, they're kind of on a peacekeeping mission, right? They're going to be, they're going to explore new worlds, and they've actually got these Earth-like planets they're going to, and Illus is the one they're going to focus on more than anything. And I, we found out a lot about this at San Diego Comic-Con this year. I actually got to walk through part of what Illus might look like during Comic-Con. I mean, and that's the first one that they're going to go to. And this is, you know, the the Belters are supposed to be the ones that are populized there. There's ruins from a long-dead alien civilization. they got to figure out what's going on there. Well, what we really see in the trailer, though, are little teases and bits and pieces of what that mission might look like. And it certainly looks like a dangerous one, and it certainly looks like there's somewhat of a war brewing. But what this also seems like is a, you know, spaces version of the Oklahoma land rush, right? That's kind of what these planets are, because what there is is basically the, the they've been given access to all these Earth-like planets. Now it's like, okay, go ahead, Earth and Belters and Martians, go ahead, go populate all of these areas. And how do you think that's going to go? Just look back on your U.S. history and how did the Oklahoma land rush really go? It was pretty intense stuff. So imagine what that would be like with thousands of planets and what the best ones would be up for grabs. And you're flying to these things, too. You're not just running with, you know, sticks and, and you know, flags to plant in the ground sort of thing. There's a lot to to unpack here. So I can't wait to see how they do that in this upcoming season of the expanse and maybe this will divide the crew a little bit right because it's a very diverse crew as well so are there going to be sides taken here or are they just going to go in there and do their job i mean to a certain extent we've seen this crew do that before but i'm very interested to see how together this crew is going to be in a mission like this one another quick one that we got was another trailer for snowpiercer or at least a teaser anyway being moved to TNT, by the way, in the spring of 2020, which I never thought TBS was the right spot for it. I think that moving it to TNT was the thing that makes sense because TNT, we know drama. And that just makes sense more than having it on TBS. I'm sorry, but it does. But here's the other thing. I feel like we learned more about the show at Comic-Con than we did from this latest teaser that we got. It sets the stage for the story very, very well. And I love seeing... I mean, I say I love seeing it, but it's kind of a brutal scene when you see the quote-unquote regular people rushing the train that's being built for the rich people that are trying to escape the cold, right, and the and the, and the deep freeze. So they rush the train, and that's what you're going to have coming up on Snowpiercer basically this season. And we talked about that in the trailer from San Diego Comic-Con, but we don't really get a whole lot of new information. It's basically just, a, oh, hey, by the way, Here's what our show is going to be like. Here's how brutal it's going to be in the beginning with people getting done to down trying to rush this train to save their lives, by the way. So while it does grab your attention, if you didn't necessarily know a whole lot about the show, but if you've already seen the other trailer, this one kind of leaves you with a, eh, you know, I like the first one better. So 
it doesn't make me not want to watch the show, but I, I just thought it was an interesting step to do this now. When you, It just seems like the two should have been flip-flopped to me, but I digress because I'm going to watch it either way. And then you've got Manifest, which really teased just a little, little bit about their upcoming second season. And what you get to see is basically Ben going off the rails a little bit, right? And he's starting to trust, trust the passengers a little bit more than his actual family and his friends and all these things that are going on. And yeah, I mean, there's still plenty of mystery left after what happened at the end of season one, but you get to see some of these new characters come in and maybe Ben's getting manipulated a little bit, or maybe he's trusting the wrong people. He's even at odds with Michaela at this point a little bit. So, I mean, and then you've got the, the the research that, you know, wants to be exploited. We don't know who these new characters are that want to be a part of this research. And again, that Ben is telling them that they need to keep this close to themselves and only trust the passengers. So it seems like there's very much a passengers versus everybody else feel coming up for season two of Manifest. And it seems like that is going to be a part of it based on what we know with some of these new cast of characters. If you want to learn more about them, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Other than those trailers, the biggest story of the week that really came out to me anyway was that The Matrix 4, well, the yet-to-be-titled Matrix sequel, has finally cast their leading man. And yes, even though Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss are coming back, it looks like Yaha Abdul-Mateen II has been cast in the lead role for the movie. Now, if that name sounds familiar, he was Black Manta in Aquaman. He's been in a ton of other stuff as well. So it's it's almost like... It's he's not necessarily the new Neo. And there's been rumors by plenty of places that, you know, young Morpheus was going to appear in this movie and that maybe that's the role that Abdul Mateen the is going to be playing. But there's really no there's really no concrete answer as to which character this is going to be. But I mean, the guy is a legit great actor. And we saw that in Aquaman. You've seen that in the get down and other stuff that he's been in. He's got that mysterious vibe to him, too, if he needs to go there for what we will have in a Matrix movie. And while I think the cast is going to be legit, I think that I'm just worried about where this story is going to go. Where can you take it that it hasn't already been taken, right? That's my thing. And you're, you've waited this long to do this, and that's always a worry, too. And what I would like to think that Keanu Reeves especially would not agree to do another Matrix movie, if he didn't look at this script and go, okay, this makes sense, so let's go ahead and do this. And will we see Neo in more of a mentor role and in more of the Morpheus role in this movie, or is it going to be something completely different and off the walls? And when you come to The Matrix, different and off the walls seems to be kind of what they do. So that's what I'm expecting more than anything else. And that's going to do it for nerd news this week because there just wasn't a ton up next how about we talk about the final season of arrow with the cast and the producers that's next on the down and nerdy podcast yeah brother this is josh Segura, and you're listening to the down and nerdy podcast it's hard to believe the end is almost here season eight of arrow the final season premieres this coming tuesday october the 15th at 9 p.m eastern on the cw and maybe for one final time i got to sit down with the cast and producers at san diego comic-con this year starting with james banford mr everything director producer and you know the first question to him was and he always gives nice long answers my question was what can you tell us about the upcoming season and away he went what can you tell us about this upcoming season uh, well, we, we, you know, we, we left it off in a very emotional, 
you know, heartbreaking uh, place with their finale last year. Um, and it's going to continue down that road. I, uh, in each episode, I mean, I'm still, I've got about two more days left shooting the premiere, or directing the premiere, and uh, every single day there's been somebody crying on set. Um, just with the, the cast, the performances, even, you know, the, the crew, everybody's, like, watching the actors going, holy shit, this is happening. And not, they're not crying because, you know, the show's ending, because they'll cry plenty for that in December, but they're crying because of all the content and the performances, and, and uh, the script is brilliant. The 801 script is so good. It almost shoots itself, which we say that shit all the time, uh, but it's gigantic, and uh, and we're all exhausted, and we don't care because it's worth it. Uh, so um, I would say I would say that this season uh, you'll feel a lot of nostalgia from the pilot, from season one, from season two, from every season. Um, it's pretty much every season rolled up into one. Uh, the premiere. 801 has been like shooting the pilot all over again, but trying to outdo it, and the finale episode from season one, and the pen, and 121 from season one, all rolled up into one episode, and it's killing me. But um, <laughs> uh, I just get up every day and I'm like, let's do this, because I'm having so much fun, and everybody's so committed to making it fantastic, so... I wish we had more uh, broadcast time. Um, we have 42 minutes, and I'm, there's so much good stuff that we're shooting. I'm just so, damn, I'm, that's going to make it. Damn, that's going to, you can only put so much in an episode. Next up was the wonderful Juliana Harkavay, who plays Dinah and, of course, Black Canary on the show. The first question for her was, where do we start out with her at the beginning of this season? So um, the very start of the season is a bit of a departure. It's uh, We're doing something a little bit different, uh, and um, it's going to... I'll just say that. It's going to be a little bit different at the start of the season. It's something uh, different and, uh, and unexpected, so I'm very excited to see uh, what people think, if people catch on to what's going on. But uh, then, you know, at the beginning of the season, she's also still the police captain. Um, she's sort of still trying to figure out where to find her footing with uh, the team just, you know, falling apart in a sense. And, um, yeah, but it's going to be a little bit of a twist on what we normally see for Dinah. Next question for Juliana was, are you happy about how your characters progressed throughout her time on the show? I, uh, I am, I am. And especially like with the future stuff, it's been so interesting because uh, it's given us such an opportunity to like really do rich work as actors, to just like jump 20 years in the future. You can fill in whatever you, know, you want to in the middle for the most part. And it's, uh, it's been really rewarding. So I really am grateful to our writers uh, and our producers for, for the storyline they've given her. I think it's been... It's been really cool and interesting. Team Dynamics definitely going to be different this year, so I asked Juliana, how does Oliver being pulled away affect Dinah directly? We see Oliver get pulled away at the end of last season. How is that kind of directly affecting Dinah with now Green Arrow not being right, there? Right. I think Dinah feels a sense of, you know, she has to step up now. I think she feels like, well, you know, 
who's left and what can we do and we need to sort of because the, the hierarchy of the team is is important um, and our leader is gone so she definitely also Dinah being Dinah uh, feels the need to sort of step up to that position you know not that she wants to be in charge but you know who will because somebody needs to take care of the team the final question for Juliana was what do you hope the legacy of the show is I hope it makes people want to be better people I hope it makes people want to be just and and make the right choices and even if they don't make the right choices surround themselves with the right people who can who can put them in that direction and um, that's that's very important it's just not error if you're not talking to Katie Cassidy who plays Laurel in Black Siren or, or does she because the first question for her was which Laurel are you now this season? She actually gives us a little more info after that, too. We are as if the Laurel never died. So she still went through everything she went through. She still got that sass, a little edgy sassiness because she's gone through a lot of shit. Um, so that's the uh, version that you're seeing. I also have a new costume. I'm not sure if you guys seen it. Uh, we were going to show it on the panel, but we ran out of time. It is so dope. It's so cool. I mean, it's, oh, it's online now. We've posted it. You should check it out. But it, out of all of the costumes, I mean, it's fantastic. Also, I'm directing episode 803, which, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I'm really excited. Um, I went through the WB uh, Director's Workshop over hiatus, which is about a two-month program, and I learned so much, and I feel, you know, I feel overly, I shouldn't say overly prepared, but I definitely feel ready, and I'm just really excited because also the act, these actors are so good, and so for the very first time directing, I'm just like, I, this is... I'm so lucky like to have like great people who I know and love and you know to just be able to like work with them I just I don't know I think it's gonna be awesome and I'm not sure if I answered your question but I gave you a lot of answers <laughs> my question for Katie was is there any story that you've been wanting to tell that you might be able to tell now that you're directing an episode well, well given that this being the final season you getting to direct an episode is there a story that you've been waiting to tell that you might be able to do in that episode uh, yes, but I can't answer what story that is, <laughs> because it's happening in the episode, and Fair I can't spoil it. What's You'll on? have to watch my episode. Fair enough. Final question for Katie Cassidy was, could we see Laurel appear on Legends of Tomorrow with her sister at some point? I would love that, because I love Katie. I mean, Katie Lotz is one of my closest friends. She actually, she was my roommate uh, in Vancouver for a while, and this season, she's actually... We're in the same building, and I, her apartment is right below mine. <laughs> so like, we have each other's fob, so we go down and up to each other's rooms. We watch movies together. She actually did the uh, director's program as well, um, and so she's been really cool. It's been cool to like bounce ideas off of her, and she has she's really creative. She's got great ideas. One of the guys that's been there from the start, Mark Guggenheim, executive producer, sat down, and you know the first question for him was, hey, talk about Crisis on Infinite Earths. We started planning the crossover earlier than we ever have because we know it's it's five hours it's you know based on the most you know seminal important i think you know dc comic book story um you know it requires a lot of planning it requires a lot of care and you know as always you know we approach it from the standpoint of don't screw it up you know um the 
we, we assembled this amazing writers' room of showrunners, writers, and we like you know we worked and crafted. You know, I think a, a very you know a, a really cool story that you know honors not just the Arrowverse but honors the the fact that it's it's got to be more than just the Arrowverse. It, it has to touch other corners of the DC universe and. Um, I'm really excited. I, I, you know, it's 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 probably the most important thing I've ever worked on, quite frankly. One thing I really wanted to ask Mark Guggenheim about the final season of Arrow was: when you go into a final season like this, how do you decide who comes back for one final bow? When you're going into a final season of a show, there's always that: okay, who's going to be coming back? Who are we going to? So, how do you go about selecting, like a character like Prometheus, for example? How do you go about selecting? Okay, who's going to come back for this final season? That's that's a good question, and it's tough because you know, at, look at the end of the day, and you know, Twitter wants, doesn't want to hear about this, and I don't think the audience certainly wants to hear about this, but like. You have a certain amount of money, you know, um, and and you've got actors who are available and some who are not available, and you know, some are working on other projects, and there's just realities that you have to deal with, um, and you go into it with like your wish list, and then reality intrudes and cuts down that wish list. Um, but you know, I think you know we we love. Jason, we, we love the character of Prometheus. Um, you're seeing a different version of Prometheus than you've seen before, I will say, in the in the series premiere. Um, but it's... Uh, I, say, I say Jason. I meant Josh. You know, Josh is amazing. We've always loved him. And uh, he was always on our short list when we said we want to revisit certain moments and certain characters. Um, so it, we're just lucky that we were able to get him because he's a talented guy and he's busy and you know, there were other shows out there. Final question for Mark Guggenheim was, what other characters can you tell us about? And he actually dropped some nuggets about Crisis in there as well. I can tell you that LaMonica Garrett is going to reprise his role as the monitor in the uh, crossover, but he's also going to play the anti-monitor as well. Um, and that's the big bad of the crossover. Um, so and you're going to see like a lot of familiar faces. Like the, the really the goal of season eight is look is we're looking forward, but we're really looking backwards to look forwards. Um, and we're acknowledging sort of all the greatest hits and all the key moments of the show, and that includes a lot of you know key characters and familiar faces. Um, again, we're always working with the limitations that we have of reality, but uh, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm, I'm thrilled that we're you know the people who are coming back, um, you know their family, and it's it's wonderful to you know to see them again. The man himself sat down next, Stephen Amell. You know Oliver Queen, The Arrow. He's had many other names on the show first question for him was I mean reflect on the show ending and just looking back a little bit it's been a, it's been a good solid eight years of working really 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 hard which is frankly you know all you can ask for as an actor but um, all of my favorite shows have announced that they were coming to an end and I think that Making that announcement gave us a lot of clarity towards the end of season seven, and it has lit season eight on fire. Like, we're getting to do, like, there are no bullets left in the chamber by the time we're done, and I think that's cool. My question for Steven, talking about the final season of Arrow was, do you feel like Crisis on Infinite Earths is a good way to go out? Do you feel like Crisis on Infinite Earths is just like kind of a really good way to go out? 
Yeah. Can you think of a better way? No. There you go. <laughs> no, it's a really cool way. It's, it's one of the most famous storylines, you know, across, across all of DC. And for it to... Although, we've got two episodes after Crisis. So it's not totally how we're going out. Right. It's just the last crossover. Next up, someone asked Stephen Amell to talk about the new suit that's going to be coming up this season and what he wanted for this final season. I asked them, they said, what do you want for your suit? And I said, I want a suit that's like an homage to season one. But like, you know, do your stuff with it. And they go, what kind of bow do you want? And I go, season one bow. And they're like, but, but like... And they're like, how? And I go, what do you mean? I want the season one bow. And they're like, well, but we'll like goose it up a little bit. And I go, ah. <laughs> I want the season one bow. And they kicked a bunch of ideas around and they called me like, we're going to go with the season one bow. So the suit's new and exciting, very comfortable, and we're back to the cloth hood. It's a really, really cool suit. They nailed it. Very comfy. Hot right now, but very comfortable. The final question for Stephen Amell was, what's the tone going to be like, and what's coming for Oliver early on in the season? You know, Oliver, over the course of the first three episodes, reconciles and, and, and gets closure with five different characters that I don't think the fans ever thought that he would get closure with. It's always fun to sit down with David Ramsey because you never know what he's going to say about John Diggle. And one of the questions for him was actually a cool one, and that is, What's on your John Diggle bucket list coming up before the show ends? A few things. Um, and number one, what happens ultimately to his relationship with the leader of Argus, Lila Michaels. Um, I think that's important. because uh, And Lila plays a very big role in this season. You should know that. And uh, number two, his two sons that are influential in the future. Um, where, where was he? What happened? Does Diggle exist in that future? And um, number three, is he or is he not Green Lantern? I think all those questions have to be answered and will be answered. And where's your ring, John? And if and that connects obviously to Crisis. Stepfather's name is Stuart. And now you know another another homage with the new uniform that has green piping and everything else. So so it's just you know they better. They, I think I think we better give you guys some answers quickly on that. My question for David Ramsey was, we've seen the rises and falls between Diggle and Oliver over the years, and what would be your perfect ending for the two of them? So we've seen the rises and falls in yeah. Diggle and Oliver's relationship over the years, and I know that you guys don't know much because you've only seen up to episode three script-wise. So what do you hope that final scene between Oliver and Diggle is? Um... What would be your perfect ending for that? Well, that's a good question. My perfect ending for Oliver and Diggle should be much like the beginning, uh, when they agreed to take on this journey together and to take care of each other. Um, and, and they're brothers. I have two older brothers, and they fight, we fight, we fight. And we love, and we love, and we love. And I, and I don't think we have to put a button on that. We just have to be real with that. And uh, that's why I like the episode when we had that fight so much because, you know, it was 
just tell you a little story about that. It was just very well choreographed at first, and it was just punch and a punch and a kick. And we're just like, these two guys are brothers. They will not do that. I have two brothers. They're going to break things. They're going to go through windows. There'll be no technique. They're just trying to just pummel each other. And then mom is going to come in, and the Felicity was mom at that time, to break it up. Um, to continue to tell that honest story with these two brothers is is the way you end the story. Um, I don't think there has to be a button on it besides being true to that. And um, and ultimately, knowing now the end, I think that's exactly what happens. Final cast member to stop by to talk about the final season of Era was Rick Gonzalez, who of course plays Renee and Wild Dog. First question up for him was, what can we expect from Renee this season? And is there anything you hoped you would get to do before the show ends? We'll give the audience a chance to kind of see Renee in a way they've never seen him before. I'm excited. I, there's nothing more I can say about that. It's just like, we've never seen him like this. I would have liked for Renee to fall in love, just to kind of see that side of him. But I do like the idea of, I, I love the storyline of him being the mayor last season and kind of him losing his way. You know, but his heart was in the right place. He thought he was doing the right thing. He thought, you know, instead of being a vigilante, going into politics would do more right. Uh, and so <clears throat> his heart is still there. It's just, he didn't, he lost his way. So it'd be interesting to kind of see how he loses his way. My final question for Rick was, how is his relationship with Dinah going into this upcoming season? How is his relationship with Dinah at this point in this season? Because it's always been a little bit, you know, sometimes they're good, sometimes it can be a little bit rocky because they don't exactly yeah. see eye to eye. Will we see that play out a little bit more as well? I think, I think they'll be okay. I think, I think Dinah and Renee have been like sister, brother and sister. You know, they've always kind of like connected on that level you know, and protected each other and cared about each other. Um, so, yeah, I think that 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 part will be fine. They'll, they'll, they'll still be totally connected. You know, it's really bittersweet for me because Arrow is the one that started it all, right? I've said it before and I'll say it again, that without Arrow, we don't get probably a lot of or any of these shows. And that is going to really be the legacy, I think, long term of Arrow is what it was able to do, expand the DC universe and superhero shows in general on television. This was almost like the landmark show that started this whole renaissance on TV. And Mark Guggenheim actually referenced that when he was sitting down as well. So, I mean, what do you say about that show other than, first of all, I'm glad that we're getting that Canary spinoff. So it's going to continue at least in a certain way. But what do you say to a guy like Stephen Amell? What do you say to somebody like David Ramsey, Katie Cassidy, and, and this group that just brought so much over the course of all of these seasons and what this final season is going to be like, not just for them, but for us as fans and how it, it's it's going to be a shortened order. But what is going to happen in these final episodes? We could be, and I'm really hoping that this turns out to be true, looking at one of the best final seasons for a show, especially in the genre, maybe ever. That's That's what my expectation is, and I really think that they can land that. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks for Warner Brothers for letting me join the cast of Arrow at Comic-Con this year. As a matter of fact, you can join me on October the 15th at 9 p.m. Eastern on the CW and on the TV Co. app. Make sure you download that on your smartphone because I will be doing a watch party for the Season 8 premiere of Arrow. Hopefully you can join me for that. Also find out more information on the show at downandnerdypodcast.com. 
Follow us on social media at Down and Nerdy 757 on Instagram and on Twitter and Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.